If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, the Lord remembers. What promises of the Lord does he remember? All of them. God is absolutely faithful. If he says he's going to, he's going to. Whether you want him to or whether you don't. Zechariah chapter 3 begins with the mention of two particular people. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So Joshua, what is that in Hebrew? Do you know? Yeshua. No, it's Yehoshua. So many people think that Joshua is Yeshua, but it's not. It's Yehoshua. It's a different word with a different meaning. But he's the high priest, meaning what? He's a direct descendant of Aaron. He's the eldest qualified descendant of Aaron. So he is not just priest, he is the high priest. What's the high priest of? There's no temple. Well, that's the problem. There's supposed to be a temple and God's saying, get on it. But to have a temple, you need a high priest. The high priest is ready. He's standing before not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord. Who is described in scripture as the angel of the Lord? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. Notice angel is capitalized in your Bible. The word angel does not mean a created heavenly being. It means a messenger. So if a king sends out a messenger, we call him a messenger. If God sends out a messenger, we call him an angel. It can be a human being. It can be a created being up in heaven. It could be Messiah himself. If they're delivering the word of God, they're referred to in scripture as an angel. And Satan's standing at his right hand to what? Oppose him. Oppose who? The angel of the Lord or? No, Joshua. Oh my. First of all, let's go to Haggai chapter 1 and read about Joshua. Haggai chapter 1. <coughs> short pages, short pages. Really thin. You know, Wayne? Yeah. If you don't mind. Um, Go ahead. I've been studying uh, the book of Job again. You've been studying Job again. Yeah, We're going to get Job in a minute. <laughs> Yeah. Yep, we're going to go there and look at that in just a minute. You just know where I'm going, that's all. <laughs> Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. How many of you realize that God did not have a mean old English teacher that assigned him a thousand page book to write, right? So every detail they put in here is important. And how often do we just read across it? Like in the first verse of Haggai chapter 1, it says, In the second year of King Darius. Do you ever stop to think, why is that there? Or do you just read across it? Well, King Darius, he's the same king that's ruling during Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zechariah. It's in the second year of his reign, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. What is the sixth month? It's Elul. First day of Elul, Elul 1, begins the 40 days of Teshuvah, repentance. So you know right from the start that Haggai is going to be about, hey, get off your duffs and do what I told you to do, right? 
And the word Haggai is actually Haggai. Everybody say that. Haggai. Chag means festival. And the A-I at the end is my, referring to the Lord, my festivals. And Haggai describes the rebuilding of the temple in relation to the seven appointed times of Leviticus chapter 23, which is why God keeps throwing dates in here. On the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua. This is the same Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1. The son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, What does that word saying keep meaning? It's a quote. It's a quote within a quote. This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Here's the Lord saying, the people are saying, oh, it's not time yet to build the temple. Is that God's opinion? No. What day does this message come? The first day of repentance, the first day of teshuva. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Who are you putting first if you're dwelling in nice, beautiful panel houses and the temple of God lies in ruins? You're putting the world first. You're putting yourself first. How many of you live in a nice house today while God's temple lies in ruins? Uh-oh. Is he talking to us? Yeah. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In times. Consider your ways. What's that mean? Repent. Yeah, think about what you're doing. Is this really the path you want to go? You have sown much and bring in little. In other words, the crops weren't blossoming. They, they weren't filling the barns. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. In other words, what are they missing? They're missing God's blessing. Why are they missing God's blessing? Because they need to repent. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it. Be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. In other words, if the people were living in tents, maybe God wouldn't have said anything. But they have settled in the land. They've built beautiful houses. They planted gardens. And they're happy with their lives, with the temple of God in ruins. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. Uh-oh. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you. That's what this means. Heaven and earth is witnessing to the people that they are in sin, that they need to repent. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the guy from Zechariah 3.1, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. 
as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So how long did it take him to respond to the message? 24 days. Yeah. But right before the Feast of Trumpets, they get it in gear. They find their repentance. They get right before the Lord, and the blessings of the Lord begin to flow. Let's go back to Zechariah. How close are Zechariah and Haggai together in the Bible? Right up against each other. Now turn back to Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. So how much time has passed between the time they start working on the temple in Haggai chapter 1 and the start of Zechariah chapter 1? About a month and a half. They started working on the temple. They started with gusto. And you know what? They've run across some difficulties. And are saying, yeah, maybe we should just go back and do our fields, right? No, that What's that? Yeah, that like that worked before. So here we are. Zechariah chapter 3. You see the time period now. The spirit of Joshua and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's the civil leader. He's the son of David. If you go down that line, he's the rightful king, but he can't be king because he's the descendant of Kaniah who was cursed. Therefore, instead of being king, he's simply governor. And Joshua is the descendant of Aaron, and God's just got their spirits going where they said, we got to kickstart this and get going. But now we find that Joshua's got a problem. Um, Let's see. Who's standing at the right hand to oppose him? Say, let's go to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. When Satan is opposing, he's doing what he's always done. Job chapter 1. Verse 6. Whoops, wait a minute. I got two questions out there. Let me see what they are. Okay, Paul, we will definitely keep you in prayer. Huh. Thank you, Susie. Okay. In the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that's referring to the angelic host, right? The angels in heaven, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came amongst them. What does the word Satan mean? It means the adversary. That's the title of the prosecuting attorney in a Jewish court. 
So he's like the district attorney. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking back and forth on it. What's he looking for? Somebody to tempt. Someone to destroy. Right? He's always looking for someone to destroy. And let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. This is why he's standing next to Joshua. Joshua, yes, sir. And verse 7, doesn't that mean when he's walking back to and fro on the earth, that means it shows ownership and possession? Yeah, true. It does. First Peter. Chapter 5. Verse 8. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Yep. It says, be sober, which means right-minded. Vigilant. What's vigilant mean? Steadfast and looking out, right? Be watchful. Because your adversary, that's Hasatan, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So, I'm trying to build up the suspense. Why is he next to Joshua the high priest? Isn't Joshua the high priest the most godly man in Israel? Eh, not really. There's a problem. So let us go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Because I gotta build the suspense a little. Daniel chapter nine, verse twenty-five. Daniel chapter nine, verse twenty-five says, "No, therefore, and understand it from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem." Was that the commandment given to Nehemiah or Ezra? To Ezra, right. Ezra was given the word to go rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah the walls. So those are the two steps. From the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. Meaning that when they go and start to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, they're going to run into opposition. It's not going to go smoothly. It's going to be hard. And what we find in the book of Zechariah is Joshua's getting a little bit of pushback. Getting a little bit frustrated, a little bit downtrodden. His faith is being questioned. Let's go to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 is the command to rebuild the temple, right? Ezra chapter 4. 
Then we're going to Nehemiah and see the command to build the temple. I'm sorry, temples in Ezra, Nehemiah is the city and its walls. Let me make sure I get that clear. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Let me make sure I have the setting set right here. Let's see. I do. Okay. Ezra chapter 4 verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, that's Joshua, they just spell it with a different vowel here. And the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah, they troubled them in building. So this is what Daniel had prophesied. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. You're going to get opposition. Now, let's, And who was it that gave the command to restore the temple? Here you see it's Cyrus. Go to Nehemiah, and now it's Darius who's reigning. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. Have we found it? But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we as servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. And then chapter 3 is all about the pushback and the problems that they're giving to the rebuilders. So turn to Nehemiah 4, since we don't want to read all the way through, through chapters 3 and 4. We'll just skip up to chapter 4 and read verses 1 through 3. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 to 3. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. You know, this is not the first year that as we approach Rosh Hashanah, they have found foxes running across the Temple Mount. But I think it was last year they did it too. And it was big news saying, is this God's sign that it's about to be rebuilt? We'll see. But they did have troublesome times. And let me tell you part of the trouble source. But first, go to Revelation 
chapter 12, verse 10. Revelation 12.10 tells you more about how Satan's going to have a part in the tribulation period. Revelation 12 takes place at the same time as Daniel chapter 12. It's right at the middle of the tribulation period, right at that midpoint, three and a half years in. And Revelation 12.10 follows verses 7, 8, 9. So let's read 7, 8, 9 for context. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. That's from Daniel 12.1. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. A lot of people are misled, and they think Satan was kicked out of heaven in Genesis chapter 1, and has been roaming around the earth for the last 6,000 years, not able to go back into heaven. But he doesn't get cast out until the middle of the tribulation period. Verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole earth, whole world. He was cast to the earth, and the angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren accused him before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, who gave birth to the male child, that's Messiah, born in the hearts of the Jewish people. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. How do we know it's at the middle of the tribulation? Because she has to flee for three and a half years, which is the last half of the tribulation period. This is another way we know that the original language to Revelation is Hebrew. Do you see the end of verse 14 where it says a time? A time represents a year. And times, how do we know that's not 30 years, 40 years? Because in Hebrew there's a special ending that means two of something. It's an ayim ending. So this is two times. A time, two times, and half a time, which is one year, two years, and half a year. That's something pretty neat in Hebrew. For instance, how many hands do you have? Two. The word for your hands is not yadim, it's yadayim, because you have two. You have two eyes, the word is enayim. You have two ears, oznayim. You have one mouth, so there's not a word for two mouths, because you only have one. Okay. Back to... Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. I know we've just gotten started. Verse 2 says, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Oh, put in your notes. This means Satan cannot win. Satan's going to be a big loser, and he knows it. 
But notice Joshua doesn't say, I, Joshua, rebuke you, Satan, does he? It says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen, has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So there is some sin in Joshua. And Satan knows it. And he's there to accuse Joshua before the Lord. And the Lord, instead of rebuking Joshua, rebuked Satan. And said, who chose Jerusalem to be rebuilt? He says, I did. Who chose Zerubbabel and Joshua to do it? I did. So you're accusing him to me, saying he's not worthy? I chose him. You lose. Loser. Go to Jude chapter 1 verse 9. I throw in chapter 1 because people will say, what chapter? There's only one chapter to Jude. So it's Jude verse 9 says... Yet Michael the archangel, that's the archangel who stands watch over the people of Israel according to Daniel 12.1. An archangel is a really high-ranking dude in contending with the devil. They're fighting the devil and Michael when he disputed about the body of Moses. Satan thinks, I get the body of Moses because he sinned against the Lord when he struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. Therefore, if he's a sinner, he's mine. What has Satan forgotten about? Repentance and forgiveness. But when he contended about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I've heard so many ministers of a certain persuasion rebuking Satan to his face. This says even Michael the archangel was afraid to do that. Satan's a really powerful angelic being. So let the Lord rebuke him. Because who's more powerful, the Lord or Satan? The Lord is. It's also in the book of Jude. Look at verse 23. But others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire. How did the Lord describe Joshua as being like a firebrand pulled out of the fire? Who pulled him out of the fire? God did. So when Satan is saying, he's not sinless, he's not perfect. Does the Lord go, gee, I didn't know that. Maybe I made a mistake. No, the Lord says, of course I know that. But I Pulled him out of the fire. I chose him. And when it says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? The word plucked mm -hmm. is a choice by the Lord. It's a deliberate act. It's not that he tumbled out of the fire on his own. So the Lord has chosen Joshua for this purpose. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, can you define like uh, an example of railing accusation? A railing accusation. A railing accusation would be pointing out the sins that someone has done and saying that they should be condemned for it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So verses 3 and 4 of Zechariah 3. Let's read them together and we're going to see the problem that exists. Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. What do filthy garments indicate? Not the righteousness of the saints, but he stained with sin. So he started the rebuilding process. He's getting all this pushback and opposition because he still has not repented and come clean before the Lord. The Lord has chosen him. He's put him in this position. But Joshua has not yet repented and put on the clean robes, the righteousness of the saints. And we're standing before the angel, still talking about our Messiah Yeshua. Then he, the Lord, answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. What was the sin we're talking about? Does the Bible tell us? The answer is yes, it does. Go back to the book of Ezra, chapter 10. I don't want to keep teasing you because I don't think I'm building up the suspense anymore. I think I'm just starting to bore you. So let's get on with it. Ezra, chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God a very large assembly of men, women and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel one of the sons of Elam spoke up and said to Ezra we have transgressed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. That's a big whoopsie, isn't it? Are all the people forbidden from taking a wife outside of Israel? No, but the priests are absolutely forbidden of it. Let's finish reading 1 through 12, and then we'll go to Deuteronomy and look. Verse 3, now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all those wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehanan, the son of Eliashib. When he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. That whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, all his property would be confiscated. He himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God 
trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and with a loud voice said, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 7 and see what God said about priests taking pagan wives. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 to 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 to 6. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So what happens if the priests intermarry with pagan wives and start adopting the wise pagan ways? How are they going to lead Israel? Are they going to lead them to be true to the Lord? Or are they going to lead them into compromise? So back to Ezra 10. Now that we've seen what the scriptures say. But this time in Ezra 10, we're going to start in verse 18. Verse 18. We're ready? And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua. That's Joshua the high priest. These are his sons. The son of Josedak and his brothers, Maaseah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. So did these sons of Joshua marry these pagan wives without their father's knowledge and blessing? No. So how can this man be high priest before the Lord our God when he's blessing his sons, breaking the commandments of God? Do you see why he's in filthy clothes? Yeah. Let's go back now to the book of Zechariah. To chapter 3. That was verses 3 to 4. Verse 5 says, And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord 
stood by. What's that mean? He's just lazily looking around, bored out of his mind? No. He's watching to make sure that all that he's commanded is being carried out. What's the significance of taking off the dirty rags and putting on the clean, righteous clothes? Is repentance is going on. And God's word is being carried out. A lot of people are surprised when they see a turban. Did the high priest wear a headdress or a turban? The answer is yes. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 28. The high priest and the high priest alone wore this kind of a turban. Exodus chapter 28, verse 4. And these are the garments which they shall make. A breastplate. What is a breastplate? It's kind of a square piece of gold that goes upon the chest. It's on chains. And in it are 12 stones. One for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The names are engraved on the stones. Next it says an ephod. That's under it. And there's a pouch in which goes a parchment called the Urim and Thummim, which means lights and perfections. And when the high priest would ask God something like, should we go out to war today? God would light up the different letters in the stones to give a literal message back. What is the Hebrew word for yes? Ken. And for no? Low. So they're very different. You wouldn't confuse one for the other. When God said yes, he meant yes. But the Urim and Thummim that goes in that little pouch has the name of God that is, what is it, 88 letters long? I've, no one knows exactly what that name was, just that it was really, really long. And then Exodus chapter 28, if you're still there, let's go to verse 36. Oh, wait, I didn't finish verse 4. Just let me read the rest of it. A robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. There's where we got the turban. Now in chapter 28 of Exodus, down to verse 36. This goes on the turban. You shall also make a plate of pure gold engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, Kadosh Ladonai, holiness to the Lord. So it's right across here, right across the forehead. And the high priest is not permitted to raise his hands above that. Which is interesting because he had to trim the lamps of the menorah and they're higher than that. So he had to get up on a box or a stool to do that so he never lifted his hands above that holiness to the Lord. He shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban, it shall be on the front of the turban. So turning the turban backwards to look street. Okay. Verse 30 says, So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. 
and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Can Aaron ever turn his back on God? No. So the holiness to the Lord on the front is always facing the Lord, that the Lord will always remember this. In Leviticus chapter 8, let's go up to Leviticus chapter 8. Verse 9. And he put the turban on his head. Also on the turban on his front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. But as we come to Joshua in the book of Zechariah, he's all filthy. So that turban's filthy. What happens if you've got a plate that says holiness to the Lord on top of filth? Yeah, you guys are going, I can see why he has to have a new turban. Yeah. Also in Leviticus chapter 16, which is about the Day of Atonement ceremony, verse 4. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water, that's a mikvah, what we would call today a baptism, and put them on. He must be immersed before he can put on the holy garment. You guys see the symbolism. I can see the heads nodding. Good. So let's go back to Zechariah then. Chapter 3. Verse 6. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying. What's that word admonished mean? A stern warning. Is he allowed to go put the dirty clothes back on? No. Once he has been cleansed. So what did he have to do before he put on these holy robes? Repent, be cleansed, be washed clean in the water. And then put on the holy garments. So it's admonished saying. What's the word saying? It's a quote. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is the Lord leading the armies of heaven for war. So would you consider a word from the Lord of hosts a warning? You might even call it an admonishment, huh? What's that first word, if? If you will walk in my ways. Well, he's already been cleansed. He's got the clean robes and the clean turban on. He's got to continue now to walk in righteousness. If you will walk in my ways. And if you will keep my command. Then. You shall also judge my house. And likewise have charge of my courts. In other words. If you're going to be my high priest. How are you going to walk in the future? In my ways. And keep my commandments. 
What does the scripture say you and I are as believers to be? Kings and priests. Does that mean we can walk in filth? That we can wear the dirty rags? No, not at all. So my ways, my command there is also translatable as my charge. There's what have I charged you to do? What have I commanded you to do? It says, I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Stand where? No, in heaven. In heaven. He's talking about a place in the angelic hosts up in heaven. What do we all desire to do? To be with the Lord in his presence forever. So his promise is that you can stand here with the angels in my presence if you walk in my ways and keep my command. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was seeing the parallels in like in verse 4 when you're reading that about taking away the filthy garments from us. Yep. You know, and it applies to us how the blood of Yeshua takes away those garments and then how the, and it says clothing with a change of, of raiment but spiritually, he changes us as we abide in him. Right. There's just a lot of symbolism here. Isn't there a lot of symbolism? Absolutely. That's why I'm saying he calls us to be kings and priests. He makes us a holy priesthood. So like Joshua here was cleansed by the Lord at his repentance, but then was told, now walk in my ways and keep my command. He didn't get saved by walking in God's ways and keeping his commandments. Salvation comes first. Then how do we walk before the Lord? Is that not analogous or similar parallel to what in the New Testament talks about put off the old man yeah. and you know start start fresh being born again. Yeah. Don't continue to walk in the ways of the Gentiles. Don't continue in sin that grace may abound. It's in many different verses, many different ways, but they all mean the same thing. Now that you're clean, don't go back and wallow in the filth. Wayne. Yes, Emmett. Um, a guy called um, Chris Kandaya, who often uh, says some interesting things, was pointing out on one of our national radio stations that... Uh, they are liberated from Egypt before Sinai, which is exactly the same point you're making. Uh, so we don't follow, uh, you know, the law isn't there. Uh, it, it's a result. It's not in, you follow the law in order. He said the Jews were not following the law in order for that. They were saved. And as a result of, of gratitude and thankfulness and love for God, they follow the law. And I thought that and, and you've just expressed it in two other ways as well. So. But you're absolutely Just correct. All the way through. Yeah. They made the decision to follow the Lord, then he gave them the commandments, not the other way around. Same is true here with Joshua. Same is true with you and I. Hmm. Very good point. For some reason. What was the point? I couldn't hear. You couldn't hear the point. His point was he was listening to another speaker talk about the fact that Israel came to faith in God and put the blood on the doorposts in Egypt before God led them out. 
and then brought them to Mount Sinai to give them the commandments. They first became in covenant with him. They became his children. Then he gave them how to walk instructions in righteousness. And that's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 uses the term that all scripture is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That's what the Torah was given for. And that's what the Torah is still used for according to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because, as you know, all scripture refers back to... Yeah. I saw an... Oh. Yes, in 2 Timothy 3.14, it says, You know the scriptures that you had from childhood. And while my seminary said he had a 1611 King James Version Bible, we know that's not true. (laughs) All he had was the Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament, and oftentimes the Torah. So the promise in verse 7 is eternal life. Eternal life. Which does not come because we earn it. It comes because of faith. Go to John 17.3. I know we went there last night, but not everybody was here last night. John 17.3 makes a very important point. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. So in Joshua's day, for him to walk uprightly in God's commandments, he would do that. Why? Because he knew God. Because he had come into a relationship with God. Because he had the faith and the love to want to follow him. So the scripture, whether you're looking in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, is trying to teach us the same lessons. You cannot earn salvation. It's a gift of God. But does God give it to everyone? The answer is no. He gives it to his children. Those whom he knows, those who know him. And when they come to know him, he says, now walk in my ways. It's no different then than it is now. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. You have to be careful with theology. You guys know that, right? One of the things that I hear a lot from other theologians is that you cannot be a Christian if you do not accept the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? I don't accept the doctrine of the Trinity. Who is the first one to use the term Trinity to refer to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as three coexistent persons. It was Tertullian, a Catholic father, in the third century, early in the third century. How long after Messiah was that that is first suggested? 
about 150 years because it's early in the third century. And the rest of the church called him a heretic and disputed it at every turn until the Council of Nicaea when the Catholic Church said, this is now official church doctrine, you must believe it. Hmm. What does the scripture say we must do if we are a child of God? Repent and walk before him in righteousness. If you know he is God, and God said the wages of sin is death, why would you want to sin? I'm sorry, I'm getting preachy. First Kings chapter 11. Start in verse 30. 30, 3 zero. Yeah, First Kings chapter 11, verse 3 zero. And when we finish reading this, don't close it because we're going to read another section for First Kings 11. So starting in verse 30, it says... Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, the he being Solomon. And for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. Who has? Children of Israel. Solomon led them because of his foreign wives. Those pagan wives brought in their pagan gods and he even sacrificed some of his children to these pagan gods says, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. So when it says, go ahead. How do we know that Solomon uh, sacrificed some of his children? Is that in the scripture? Yeah, it's in the scripture. Yep. Unfortunately, it is, yeah. So verse 33 and have not walked in my ways. What does that mean? Since Joshua was told to walk in my ways, what does that mean? It says to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments. So to walk in the Lord's ways is to keep his Torah, the law, the commandments, statutes, and judgments. In the same chapter, verse 38, says, then it shall be if you heed all that I command you. What's that little word again? If. Walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did. Then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house. How many times do you see that in the scripture? If you will walk in my ways and keep my commandments, then I will bless you in one way or another many times how many times do you find if you will break all my commandments then I will bless you with none you're right none okay go to Psalm 81 Psalm 81 
we are all, after all, in the 40 days of teshuva or repentance. So, a little reminder that repentance is a good idea. Can't hurt. Psalm 81, verse 13. How many of you know David Cull out in Maryland? He's got a line of um, videos out there on YouTube these days that are really very good. I was listening to one just last night, and at the end of it, he, he said something that really tickled me. It was on the rapture and why the rapture might be this year. Not that it is, but here's why it, it could be. Then he said, and if, if you want to fight with me about whether it's a rapture or not, just don't bother. <laughs> I just don't want to hear it. Oh, I, call, K-U-L-L. Dave Call. So if you just go out to YouTube and put in Dave Call, you'll find his teachings. But Psalm 81, what's that? C-O-L-L. K-U-L-L. K-U-L-L. Yeah, like Call the Destroyer. Thank you. Yep, Dave Cole. So Psalm 81, verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Who's pouring out his heart there? The Lord. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. And there I hear a lot of Christians go, well, thank God, it's Israel, not me. Hey, if you're saved by faith, you've been grafted into Israel. You're part of Israel. You didn't replace Israel, but you've been grafted in. Yes, God's talking to each and every one of us. Does he want us to listen to him and be obedient? Yes, Yes, he does. I think verse 12 is significant too, where... You know, he says, I, I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. And then, and then you know, he follows up with, I don't want, I didn't want that to have to happen, but, you know, because I want them to listen to me. So, you know, it's like going back, I offer you life and death. Yeah. life. Does God want to bless them or curse them? Bless them. He wants to bless them. Can he bless them while they're walking in sin? No. no. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy 5 repeats the Ten Commandments, which are not called in Hebrew the Ten Commandments in the Bible. They're just called the Ten Words or the Ten Sayings. Deuteronomy 5, 32. Deuteronomy 5.32 Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Do you know what that means? Don't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. In Deuteronomy 12, he says, Do not add to or take away from the commandments. One is turning to the left, one's turning to the right. Don't take away, don't add to. What did the Pharisees do? They added tens of thousands of commandments. God said, don't add to it. And they said, well, we don't care. 
I'm not kidding. In the Talmud it says God gave us the Torah. Now it's none of his business what we do with it. I mean, I was so shocked when I actually read it that it really says that. I'm paraphrasing because I remember the exact words, but that's what it means. But he says, do not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Go to Deuteronomy 28, verse 14. Let's start in 13 for context to see why 14 is written the way it is. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. That's why traditionally at Rosh Hashanah you have a fish with the head on it. I think that's yucky, but that's why it became a tradition. You shall be above only and not be beneath if. It's actually because, it's not if, it's because. You heed the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you today and are careful to observe them. Now you'll see why we read that before 14. So, does 14 begin a new topic? No, it continues the thought. So you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right or the left to go after other gods to serve them. You should not turn aside from what? Any of the words. Does that mean we can take a commandment? Oh, let me pick one. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and say, well, throw that one out and replace it with thou must go to church on Sunday. Can you do that? No, because you have taken away and added to. And God's word doesn't change. So when people say, what possible difference could it make? What does God say? Well, if you don't like the Sabbath, you're not going to like the kingdom. That's for sure. Are we going to keep the Sabbath into eternity future? Yeah, that's Isaiah 66. Yes, Mary. Well, what I see in verse 13, being made the head and not the tail, the Lord has already, right above that, has talked about all the good things and the blessings. But that's, spiritually speaking, he says, I want you to be a headship of of spiritual authority and an example to people um, and, and not under other authorities that's in verse 13 and then down in 14 in not going to the right or to the left of, of what the Lord has placed that burden or not burden but that responsibility um, to not go after those other gods and, and I can see that as where we're seeing the bad fruit of that where they have they've gone after the other gods of you name all the different categories yep and what happened and god had to all their spiritual blessings that they could yep. have had and all the people that they have led astray so instead of blessing they got cursing and they made a choice yeah. and god said don't and they said yeah we're gonna anyway what can god do about it never ask those don't. words Never ask the words, how much worse can it get before the rapture comes? Sometimes I think the devil takes that as a challenge. Let's go to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Joshua, oh, I got seven comments under here. Let me see. Let me go back. Um, let's see. 
Tertullian. T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N, Tertullian. Then Rachel gives the name of a Greek and Latin lawyer in Rome. Okay. Okay. They were all about, how, how do you spell the name? Okay. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law, all the Torah, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Are you beginning to see a theme? Deuteronomy 12, 32. I mentioned it a moment ago, but we didn't turn to it. So let's turn to it. Deuteronomy 12.32 Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Okay, let's go back to Zechariah chapter 3. Are we up to verse 8? Oh, this is important. Because we're going to start talking about Messiah in more detail. Verse 8 says, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. What wondrous sign? God said they would return from Babylon after 70 years. It's been 70 years. And what are they doing? Returning from Babylon. They're doing exactly what God had said many years ago that they would do. For behold, maybe you know behold means something very important is coming. I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. This my servant is the Messiah. Will Messiah Yeshua come the first time while there is a temple standing? Yes, at the moment that this is being written, the temple isn't standing. So the Lord has given us a motivation, my servant's coming. But the temple's got to be here. Will there have to be a temple standing in this world when Messiah returns? The answer is yes. But there is not at the moment a temple standing, is there? So is God trying to get the children of Israel to get on it and get it done? You bet. Are those red heifers just about ready to be slaughtered as required by the book of Leviticus? Yes, they are. Hmm. But see the word branch in all capital letters? Every time Messiah is referred to as the branch, it's the Hebrew word zamach, T-Z-E-M-A-C-H, zamach. Except for 
Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, it's the word netzer, N-E-T-Z-E-R. That's the word from which you get the city of Nazareth. In the New Testament, it says there's a prophecy that it would be called a Nazarene. And theologians say, no, there's not. It's Isaiah 11. That he would be that Netzer, the one from Nazareth. But my servant, oh, that term is used a lot for Yeshua. Let's start with Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. This term calling Yeshua our Messiah, my servant, is one of those places where the King James only people come against the New King James Version. Where in the New Testament, in the King James, it will say, my son. In the New King James, it says, my servant. And the King James only people say, see, the New King James Version denies that Jesus is the Son of God. No, it doesn't. It's simply that the Greek word is not son, it's servant. The King James translated it incorrectly. But let's start in Isaiah 42. And we'll see the scriptures. Verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. This is about Messiah. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That's Isaiah 11. (laughs) He will not cry out nor raise his voice. That's in Isaiah 53, right? Nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. He's talking about how mild-mannered he was at his first coming. He came like a lamb. He returns as a lion. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Talking about Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. So this is Messiah. Why is he called my servant? Because he does his will. And, yep, because he does his will. We'll get to that and we're going to look at scriptures on that point. You're exactly right. That's why. It also says the Gentiles we keep in Torah. That's also in Zechariah 8.23, but we haven't got to that quite that far yet, but we're getting close. But if you look around, look around this room, Zechariah 8.23 is being fulfilled in your hearings. Let me put my sleep back on. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Starting in verse 15. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15. But when Yeshua knew it, That's that the Pharisees are planning to kill him. He withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, 
that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. Where's that from? Isaiah 42. We just read it. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 10. John chapter 15. You're still turning pages. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That's why Messiah is referred to as the servant. Sam says in 42.4 is the coastline a reference to the Gentiles? The answer is yes. The Gentile nations for the most part were around the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. So yes, that is a reference. Let's look at some other places where Messiah is referred to as the branch. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2 says, In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. The branch of the Lord, that's the word branch, that's Samach, shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. In other words, the believers that are going to be drawn back into land are going to be drawn to Messiah. Like a beautiful and glorious tree full of fruit that's so appealing to the eye. So it goes with Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch, a zamak, a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper. Of course, everybody knows that's Yeshua. And execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. That's the promise of Ezekiel 37. Now this is the name by which he will be called. Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord, our righteousness. 
But then if you turn to Jeremiah 33, 15, we're going to see almost the same words. Almost. Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time. What's at that time? That's the tribulation period, yeah. I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Will Messiah return at the end of the tribulation period? Yes, he will. He shall execute a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. When is a woman called by the man's name? When she's the bride. That's right. He's talking about the bridegroom has returned with his bride. How about Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12? If you think we're going to get there today in our teaching, yeah, probably not. But it shouldn't be too long if the Lord tarries. <coughs> Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In time. In time. Saying, it's a quote. Behold the man whose name is the branch. There's the mark. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. As he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory. That's Ezekiel 43, right? Matthew 17. And shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. This would have caused people's jaws to drop. How can a man be both priest and king? But Messiah Yeshua is both. What's that? They should have known Melchizedek was one too. Yeah. Let's go back to Zechariah three eight because I want you to tell you, tell you something about the targum. Do you know what the targums are? Targums are the Aramaic paraphrases of the scriptures. Not everybody in the days of old, or even today, are well-versed in biblical Hebrew. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but most Jewish people in the land of Israel cannot read and understand the Old Testament. Because biblical Hebrew is called in Israel High Hebrew, and it's only something that you learn through college study. What, Go ahead, interrupt Bill. It's an Aramaic paraphrase. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Biblical Hebrew in Israel is called High Hebrew, and it's only studied by those who studied in college. So in our congregation down in Alabama, I had a, a young lady who was born in Haifa, Israel, an eighth-generation Israeli, and she took Biblical Hebrew from me. Because she said, I can only read about every tenth word in the Bible. I want to be able to read and understand it. Um, so the Aramaic paraphrase was for people who hadn't studied Hebrew to that level. 
and wanted a more simplified explanation. Um, I guess that's enough to say. The Targum on Zechariah says for verse 8 that this is describing Messiah. So the Jewish sages before the days of Yeshua recognized that this servant, the branch, is Messiah. Now, of course, after the days of Messiah, they said, oh, no, no, we got that wrong. But before they wanted to reject Yeshua as Messiah, the Targum says that is King Messiah that's being discussed there. Okay, good and loud. I'm thinking of a missionary church that I grew up in. Yeah, mm -hmm. Very oriented, and we sent missionaries out all over the world. Yeah. And yet, what, what is this? Uh, uh, our assumption is that people in Israel know Hebrew. And, you know, what you've just revealed, it's like, well, that's, that's a uh, land that is ripe for harvest if we would send people over there to teach them their own language mm -hmm. that, you know, that is theirs. Yep, they I understand. have an understanding. Yep, okay. Verse 9. Continuing, and with the understanding that the Targum said, this is Messiah we're talking about. So they understood that correctly. For behold, the stone. So the branch is the servant, is the stone. Is Messiah ever referred to in scripture as a stone? Yeah. What's the first place? Genesis chapter 49. Go all the way back to Genesis 49. Remember, Zechariah is about 2,500 years ago, give or take. And yet he's talking now about the return of Messiah to establish the kingdom. So Genesis chapter 49, the key verse is 24, but we'll start in 22 for context. Verse 22 says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Open parent. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. It doesn't mean Messiah comes from Joseph. Messiah comes from the mighty God of Jacob. But here he's called the shepherd. Did he ever call himself the shepherd in the New Testament? Yeah, all those references, I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd's first introduced here as a term for Messiah in Genesis 49. And it says the stone of Israel. In Daniel chapter 2, we again see Messiah as the stone the stone cut out without human hands that destroys the idolatrous image of Nebuchadnezzar. Go back to Daniel chapter 2. Verse 
Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 to 35. You watch while a stone was cut out without hands. What's that mean? It means not of human origin. We struck the image on his feet of iron and clay. That's the time of the revived Roman Empire at the end of days. And broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together. That's the world Gentile empires. And became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That great mountain is the messianic kingdom that will be over the entire earth. Starts with a little stone. Huh. Go to Psalm 118. This was a psalm that was being sung at the very moment Messiah died. Psalm 118. It's being sung by the Levitical choirs in the temple, which is just a few yards from the place where Messiah is crucified. He's crucified just outside the Damascus Gate, the North Gate. And you could hear at the place of crucifixion the Levitical choirs singing in the temple. And this is what they're singing. Look at verse 22. As Messiah is dying on the cross. It says the stone which the builders rejected. You've got to close your eyes and picture the sight to understand the verse. The place is called Golgotha. The place of a skull. Because this is where they carved out the stones for building the temple. That's why it looks like a skull. It's where the stones were cut out. So they cut out these stones for the temple, but Messiah they rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone is the most important stone in the temple. All of the temple services point to Messiah. They're all teachings. That's what they're all about. So, I just got a picture, like you said, I closed my eyes, and I just got the picture. He was he, he, right there in the old quarry where stones were taken out, like you said, to build a quarry. And he is that cornerstone. Yep. I mean, that's that just now kind of came together yep. in my mind. Now take one step further back and look at the temple building. If they didn't install the cornerstone, what's going to happen to the temple eventually? It's going to fall down. What happened in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed. Because they didn't use the chief cornerstone, the temple could not stand the test of time. Go to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Isaiah 
Tell me this verse doesn't get quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion, Zion, prophetic Jerusalem, a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. By using the word Zion or Zion in English, we're looking toward the return of Messiah and the establishment of the kingdom. What will be the foundation for the millennial kingdom? Messiah. 1 Corinthians 3 says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is our Messiah Yeshua. He's the foundation for the kingdom. If you take him out, there is no kingdom. He is a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Let's go to Matthew 21 where they quote these words. In Matthew 21, the scribes and Pharisees want to kill him. They want to remove him. They don't want him to have any part of Israel. Verse 42, it says, Yeshua said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? That's kind of like sticking in the knife and twisting it a little. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, that's the scribes and Pharisees, and given to a nation, that's the apostles and the people that come into the congregation, bearing the fruits of it. Whoever falls on this stone that is in humility will be broken, but on whomever it falls that is unrepentant, it will grind him to powder. So when you fall on your knees before Messiah and are broken in spirit over your sin, you're on that road to salvation. When you stand up and say, I will not bend a knee, that's when you get ground to powder. Like the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Next to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Yeah, we'll start in verse 8, because that's where Peter started. And it's so cool. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Who's them? The leaders of Israel, the scribes, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we are this day judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua, the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's like standing today before the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the President saying, you guys, you made a big boo-boo. And you got to realize there's no salvation outside the one you just crucified. But God raised him from the dead. This took such courage. That's why it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, I don't know if he'd had the courage to say this to them, but he laid it on the line. Because in verse 11, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders. They know he's quoting from the prophecies. And he knows that they know they have messed up big time. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Wayne, why are you telling us all this? Because Zechariah, yes, he prophesied about Messiah. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Peter understood these verses, and he's going to use them as many times as he can. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, like newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. What causes us to grow as believers? The word of God. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So what's the foundation? The Lord. If you don't have the Lord, there's no reason to be trying to grow. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. What's the word holy mean? Set aside unto God. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua Messiah. It's talking about prayers and spreading the gospel to those that are lost. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. What does Peter mean by the scripture? He means the Old Testament. Yeah. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to those of you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, wait a minute, can you believe and be disobedient? No. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness, not to continue in darkness, but out of darkness, into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
When he says who once were not a people, he's including the Gentile believers in with the Jewish believers as one. He makes no distinction here. We did not finish the verse. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9. Which began, for behold the stone, and that's where we went off into the cross-references, that I have laid before Joshua. Upon the stone are seven eyes. What does that mean, seven eyes? Perfect vision. All-seeing. All yeah. A reference, <laughs> A reference to Revelation chapter... Yes, it's one of those. It's Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. But before we go there, let's look at Zechariah 4.10. Since we're in Zechariah anyway. Verse 10 of Zechariah 4 says, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, which are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So the seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord. Now let's go to Revelation 5, 6, and we'll see them in Revelation. You're going to find we're going to be reading from the same verse. <laughs> so the answer is yes. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. That's our Messiah, Yeshua. Having seven horns, which is complete and total authority, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Yes, the seven eyes and the seven spirits of God are just two different ways of describing the same thing. Then Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 also describes it or discusses it. Isaiah 11 2 describe those seven spirits of God and you're going to find it's a sevenfold spirit. They're not seven holy spirits. They're seven aspects or purposes that the spirits fulfill. We'll start in verse 1, because that's where you find the word netzer, which is the other word for branch. It appears only here. And it's what tells us he would come from Nazareth. There shall come forth a rod. It's actually a shoot, a little shoot that grows up from the roots of a tree. From the stem of Jesse, it's not stem, it's stump. The tree represents the Davidic throne. And the tree's been cut down, meaning the kingdom came to an end, as far as people think. But then later, here comes a little shoot, and that's Messiah. And a branch, Netzer, shall grow out of his roots. Here's the sevenfold spirit in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord, one, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, two. And understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, four. And might, Five, the spirit of knowledge, six, and of the fear of the Lord, seven. 
Those are the seven aspects, purposes, jobs, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. So yes, the seven eyes, the seven spirits, describing just two aspects of the Lord with a common meaning. So we still didn't finish that verse. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9. Upon the stone are seven eyes, and I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, give it a name that nobody knows, as we see other places in scriptures. And I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So removing the iniquity of Israel in one day didn't happen 2,400 years ago. Well, let's read when it does happen. Go to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8. Isaiah 66 is all about the second coming of the Lord. We'll start in verse 7 for context. Talking about Israel, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in particular. It says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. How many of you women would like that to have been your story, huh? Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. This is Messiah being born in the hearts of the people. Who has heard such a thing, who has seen such things, shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. What is that one day when all Israel gets saved? It's called the day of the Lord. Does the New Testament say all Israel shall be saved? Yes, go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sin. And in Revelation chapter 2. I'm sorry chapter 12 verse 2. Revelation chapter 12 verse 2. We see it happen. Revelation 12, verse 2. Then being with child. This is Israel being with child. That is being, having Messiah be born in the hearts of the people. She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And in one day, the nation of Israel is going to come to know the Lord. Happens at the battle of Gog and Magog. But our time's up. We'll have to explore that further on another day. So we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10. Two weeks from today, we will have the cold potluck after service as we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. 
Like I said, if you get here that morning at 10.30 and the doors are still locked, then worry. <laughs>